0: Well, we'll see how we do as far as different kind of setup and a different kind of setting, but we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew as a church, and so we're going to keep doing that even this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 16. Those will be our two texts that we're looking at. And one thing that's been happening when we study the Bible on this quest to know Christ is we're surprised again and again and uh, startled even sometimes in our surprises because Jesus amazingly enough, is not who we thought he was oftentimes. And so it's a shock, it's a surprise, and we're gonna see some surprises today. So surprising that they even seem to be things that Jesus does wrong. So just so I'm clear, I don't think Jesus did anything wrong. I think he did everything absolutely right. But at first, it looks like some of the things he does are wrong things, and it's one of the reasons why he's so offensive especially to religious people during his day. And I would suggest to you one of the reasons he's so offensive even today uh, sometimes is because what he does is so shocking at times, so surprising that at first, it seems like it's actually wrong, only to find out that it's actually not wrong. And so this morning, in jest, I don't really mean it, we will look at two surprising things that Jesus does that seem wrong. I won't quite say two wrong things that he does, though the people he engaged surely thought they were wrong. So what we're going to do is begin looking at chapter 15, verses 21 and following, and we'll look at two surprising things about Jesus that seem wrong but are actually right and wonderful. So I hope you're ready for that. Number one, the first surprising thing about Jesus is that Jesus helps the wrong kind of people. Wink, wink, the wrong kind of people. Again, in jest. He seems to help the wrong kind of people. And if we begin in verse 21, we can go ahead and see where this happens. It says, and Jesus went away from there. That would be the region in Galilee where he's been. And withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So that's way up in the north, those two areas. So north of Galilee, the one town is about 25 miles, and the next town is another 25 miles, and so he must have spent a fair amount of time in that northern region, the region of Tyre and Sidon. So that right, right there, Matthew wants us to know something's different here. Something's peculiar. Jesus deliberately went to get away. Uh, it's his retreat, if you will, from the Jews because he's in Gentile territory, It seems like he's in the wrong sort of place because this is Gentile territory, not Jewish territory. Jesus is a Jew. Something intriguing is happening here for him to be on this kind of journey. What is going on here? Well, verse 22 helps us to understand something else shocking uh, about the wrong kind of people. Look there with me if you would. And behold, so Matthew really wants us to see this, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and I probably need to read it with even more emphasis. It's one of those, what? A Canaanite woman? What in the world is Jesus, a pure Jew, doing, interfacing with a Canaanite woman? The Canaanites were dignified people as far as education goes. Uh, They were well-learned, we might say, in older language. Uh, They were cultured. They're the ones, according to, latest research I could find. Uh, they had the first known alphabet working with the Egyptians. And so they're, they're significant people in a general sense. But when it comes to the Jews, if you've read the Old Testament very much, you say Canaanites, Canaanite, these, these are arch rivals to the Jews. The Canaanites were the ones who were in the promised land when God gave it to the Jews. Canaanites Canaanites didn't worship the one true God. They had all sorts of gods, all sorts of pagan gods. This is like oil and water for Jesus to be engaging a Canaanite. Canaanites, Canaanites were even known to offer child sacrifices and burn them on the wall. There's an example of that actually in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 3. These are capital P, if you're a Jew, these are capital P pagans, okay, okay? Jesus is engaging a Canaanite woman? That's the wrong kind of person to be engaging if your name is Jesus, the Jewish king. So with that in mind, verse 22 goes on to say, and was crying. This is the Canaanite woman crying. You could even translate it as some do, shouting. And she keeps shouting this in the original text. This is something she's doing persistently. She's crying and crying and crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is strange. This is meant to be peculiar. This is odd. Canaanite woman, why isn't she going to all of her gods uh, why is she coming to Jesus? And did you see what she says to Jesus? Have mercy on me so she doesn't come on her own merits. Give me something I don't deserve. Oh, Lord, respect, if not even more than respect in this setting, son of David. It's meant to be shocking. She's referring to Jesus as the Messiah, the one who would come in the line of David and rule and reign forever that we've been learning about, prophesied in the Old Testament. Matthew's building that argument. And of all people. A Canaanite woman. Now I don't know about you, but I wonder: Did she know what she was saying? Well, she didn't have to know all the the ins and outs and all the intricacies. Maybe she, she she's not even a believer yet. It seems she doesn't have to have all her theo- theological t's crossed. But regardless, she's right. Okay, from the mouth of babes, no, from the mouth of Canaanites, you have mercy on me, son of David. It's meant to be striking, it's meant to be surprising. Help me, help me when my religion can't help, help me when my leaders can't help, help me when I can't help myself. I'm in a place of desperation and I need you to help my daughter like the promised, forever ruling, reigning, providing king is supposed to do. Pretty amazing, how did she know Jesus could do this? text doesn't say. Reputation. By now, he's becoming famous. He's becoming so famous that uh, Jerusalem is sending, excuse me, sending officials to come investigate. And so she's throwing herself at his feet, if you will. Verse 23 says, but he did not answer her a word. Hmm. He's going to answer her, but sometimes silence is a great teacher. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus doesn't say anything to her at first. Drama builds. Keep going. In verse twenty three, and his disciples came and begged him. Saying, send her away. for she is crying out after us. She just keeps pestering us, right? Get rid of the Canaanite woman already. She's a bother. And based upon what we're going to say, see. It seems, and based upon Jesus' reputation of healing people and not turning people away, it seems best to read this as, would you just help her already so she will leave us alone? Not very sensitive, not very kind, not very compassionate. Jesus is silent. Jesus is just waiting for all of this to orchestrate perfectly. 24 says, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why would he say that? Well, he would say that because it's true. We've actually heard this before in Matthew's Gospel account when he sent the disciples out on an occasion in chapter 10. He said the same sort of thing to them. And the reason he would say that is because, if you will, phase one, phase one of outreach, if you will, is to the Jews. And I know I'm reading ahead a little bit, but even in the pastoral epistles and the different letters that come, even like in Romans chapter one, verse 16, that many of you know well, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile, to the non-Jew. Gospel goes to the Jews first and then it's gonna go beyond that. So for now, Jesus says, why would I help her? I've come for the Jews. At least phase one, I've come for the Jews. Might seem insensitive. It doesn't need to be insensitive. It's the initial focus. Then verse 25, but she came, apparently now she's coming closer so she doesn't have to keep screaming, right? So she came to him closer and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Sounds a lot like the psalmist sounds again and again and again in the Psalms. I'm desperate, I can't find any other solutions. God, deliver me. God, help me. She sounds a lot like one who is a believer in the one true and living God who alone can bring restoration. Odd to hear from a Canaanite. Striking, strange. Verse 26 says, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. True? True? Well, she's going to agree with them that it's true. Odd, perhaps, likely a common saying. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord. In other words, I follow your logic. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What's happening is she knows she doesn't belong to to the nation of Israel. She knows that she's not a Jew, she's a Canaanite, arch rival foes. And yet she's saying, but but, but could you help me anyway? I'll take the leftovers, please. Then it says in verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. And because we use that word so flippantly in our culture, remember, great is your confidence. Great is your trust. Not faith as a virtue in and of herself. She's at her wit's end, can't do anything, can't get any help. Great is your faith. You're willing to trust in me like you're trusting in me. We've heard this before, actually, in the gospel account, when another Gentile was converted. And Jesus said something similar. This is, this is designed to be somewhat of a rebuke to the Jewish people who are supposed to believe and they're not believing. And so here we have Canaanites believing, resting in him. It's meant to be striking. It's meant to be shocking. Jesus is helping, quote unquote, the wrong kind of people. But they're the ones who are seeing Jesus for who he is and they're trusting in him. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire and your daughter And her daughter was healed instantly. Surprising? Is this surprising to us? It would have been surprising to the Jews. It would have been surprising to the disciples. And it is surprising. But in one sense, I would like to say to you, it shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't be surprising because all along, the promise has been that the Messiah would come, yes, for the Jewish people, but he would also come for the nations. He would also be the forever ruling, reigning, good, kind, powerful king who brings restoration not only for the Jews, but also for the nations. And so it's surprising when you forget that, but it's not surprising when you remember that. This is all by design. Isaiah chapter 42 is a classic text when it comes to this, a messianic text. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, he's talking to the faithful son now, I will give you the faithful son as a covenant for the people. And notice this, these are important words, important five words, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, and he goes on to develop that, but the idea is this. It's been by design, Messiah would be the Messiah, not only for the Jews, he would be the great king, the great saving king, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, the nations. Another biblical word that would be used, the world, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles. So not actually a surprise. And I would encourage you when you read Matthew to think in these terms. Remember our touchstone text that I always bring us back to, chapter one, verse 21, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. At first you say, yeah, he came to save the Jews. But you might want to keep reading and seeing the surprises. In fact, I would read that not only as the Jews, he came to save his people, the Jews and the Gentiles, and here's evidence of that. And then, you know how Matthew ends the gospel account? What's going to happen at the very end? He's going to launch his disciples in what we call the Great Commission, and he'll say, therefore, now go and make disciples of the Jews, because they're my people. No. The, the, the whole gospel letters is bracketed by, it's for he comes for his people, who are his people? Yes, the Jews, and go and make disciples of all nations. His people are Jew and Gentile alike. Indeed, as other gospel writers would say, he's the savior of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. We had baptisms today, and, and no one's last name, as far as I can remember, was Levitz, okay? No one's last name was Davidson, Find names, we would baptize people with the last name Levitz anytime, okay? They weren't Jewish, okay? Gentiles, because Jesus is the savior of everyone who would ever trust in him. Yes, he was born under the law, yes, he was a Jew, but all along by design, not a surprise, unless your theology's gotten weird and the Jewish leaders had theology that had gotten weird, He's the savior of Jew and Gentile all, even Canaanites, even Canaanites. Surprising in one sense, not surprising in another. We won't take the time to go there, but we could go clear back to Genesis chapter 12 and, and pre-Israel uh, talking about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, and it's through him all the nations would be blessed. And so there's always been the plan, always been the design even back in Genesis. Well, now for some different action. Let's see how far we can get uh, within reason now. Let's keep moving to see some more Gentile action. It says in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. So he's apparently on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be the Decapolis, which would be Gentile territory. We learned about it back in chapter five, the city, uh, the, the light on a hill So that would be the east side, Gentile territory, not Jewish territory where he'd been spending his time, but Gentile territory. Then verse 30 says, and great crowds came to him, we'll see thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put, you could even literally translate it, they were throwing, so there's so many of these people, and they're so eager, and they're so excited, they're throwing people at Jesus' feet, okay? Not in a violent sense, but to capture the idea that they're coming quickly, and then they're, if you will, piling up. There are so many of them coming to him. And if they're in a Gentile region, could be the Jews, because the Jews have been over there and followed him before, but based upon some wording that's gonna come, my conclusion is... These are Gentiles. These are the wrong kind of people. But they're. Seeing him for who he really is. They're, they're. Putting, they're throwing, they're casting them at his feet. And he healed them. He helped them. He brought restoration to them. I'm not going to get into the details of the healings and all of those things because we've been doing it again and again and again. But he's the one who this is preview. Will bring. Salvation from sin and all of its effects, okay? And he's proving that he can be the one that they can trust. And here they're coming to him like crazy. And verse 31 says, so that the crowd wondered, They wondered, they were amazed. And again, I like to really emphasize, and I'll emphasize it again, there's a crowd involved and there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. So this isn't in a back alley. This isn't some kind of weird palm reader in the back room for nobody to see or tell. This is a public event, okay? And the crowds, and the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, here's why I know that they are Gentiles, and they glorified the God of Israel. He's using that designation. They're glorifying not their gods, but the God of Israel, striking, peculiar, strange, but by now, they're seeing Jesus for who he is, even though the spiritual leaders are blind and they can't see him for who he is, here these people who have all of these other gods who can't help them are finally desperate and they're seeing before their very eyes. It's him, it's him. Matthew's writing this, that we might say, I should trust in him too. It, it doesn't mean you're a crazy person to believe in Jesus. It might mean you're a desperate person, but you're not crazy because he and he alone actually is meeting the requirements. He's worthy of the trust. They're praising the God of Israel, not their gods. Again, this could take us back to Isaiah. This is what he's supposed to do. God and God alone does this. He's the unique one, none other than the one who came from above. Then in verse 32, I love verse 32. If you want some encouragement, it comes in verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. And I'll just stop there because I love that so much. It's a pattern by now. In chapter nine we saw it, in chapter 14 we saw it. Compassion, compassion, now again, compassion. Genuine, earnest, not trying to get elected kind of care. Not trying to win a popularity contest kind of care. Not trying to put on a good face and have a good image kind of care compassion from the very innermost part of his being i genuinely authentically truly sincerely care about these people people who are not my people i care about them this is the kind of savior i want i don't want a savior like me you don't want a savior like me to be blunt i don't want a savior like you because even at our best We don't match up with what's happening here. This one who can deliver his people genuinely, earnestly has compassion on these people. And I say, oh, what a savior. I'll trust in him for my eternal life and for my temporal life. He has compassion. Then it says, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then it says in verse 33, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Notice they, just, they, they didn't just think full thoughts. Uh, it wasn't some kind of mind trick. Uh, and they all ate and were satisfied, so satisfied if we keep going, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So it's temporal, but it is an evidence that he can meet their needs because he cares, and not only does he care, he has the power to care for them like no one else could ever care for them. 38 says, those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children, which is where I got my thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and I cut that short. He fed the 5,000. Jews met their needs, temporally, preview of coming attractions. Now he feeds the 4,000 plus women and children, seemingly Gentiles, meets their needs the same sort of way he met the Jewish needs. Jesus is the one and only true, ultimate, forever ruling, providing, kind, powerful, anointed savior, king, savior of the world. seems like the wrong people, but they're not the wrong people according to Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins, his people including Gentiles. 39 says, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan, likely the west coast again where he spent his time and so much of his time as he's been there. This is where the pastor has to make the decision. First thing he does that seems wrong is he helps people who aren't his people, but we actually know if we pay close attention to the Bible, they actually are his people. Second thing he's going to do that seems wrong is he is not going to partner with the highly esteemed religious establishment. In fact, he's going to expose the system, if you will, the people who are supposed to be shepherding, the people who are supposed to be caring, teaching, taking care of, leading the people of God, he's going to expose them as fraudulent fakes. He's going to call them hypocrites. They're not real. And he's going to warn his people to beware of them. And he's going to say that their teaching is like leaven. Seems innocent at first. You don't even see it. And Jesus is gonna say again and again and again, beware, beware, beware. They're actually not for your good. I'm not going to go through them. I'm going to do what seems wrong. I'm going to expose them and call them out as frauds and fakes because they're actually trying to get you to think you're right with God by doing certain things that will never get you right with God. And we learned about that last time because ultimately, we can't be rescued through ceremonies. Ultimately, what we need is someone to meet the divine obligation for us. We need someone to obey perfectly for us, to love God and love neighbor. We need someone to atone for our sins, and we need someone to be our resurrection. So Jesus is going to expose the Pharisees and the Sadducees as fakers because they're convincing the people that just do more, try harder, and eventually you'll get in, and God will accept you. And Jesus is going to expose them as liars who offer the wrong solution to the wrong problem, because ultimately Christ and Christ alone will be able to meet the obligation. Jesus himself said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the requirement. He says it in the Sermon on the Mount no one is perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, and the point is just that. So we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to look away from Pharisees, Sadducees, pastors, reverends, bishops, gurus, to look only to him because the leaven of the Pharisees and their ilk will try to convince you that as long as you do this and as long as you do that and as long as you follow me, God will accept you. And Jesus wants to make it perfectly clear that it will never, ever, 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 ever work. Beware of that kind of leaven. We're gonna save it for next time.